You are. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. The Christmas carols that we've sung this morning have already paved the way for where we're headed. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. The well-known account of Jesus' birth in, in Bethlehem. Those Christmas carols are too good to only sing once a year, Right? I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, most people are, but I pray that the Lord would give us a renewed appreciation for what is undoubtedly the greatest miracle in all of Scripture, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, and you can please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger." because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we ask God's grace on our time. Father, we do thank You for the truths of the Scripture. As Daniel prayed just a moment ago, we thank You, God, that the Bible is the revelation of who You are. That is true, God. And to read the Bible is sheer grace to unworthy people like us. To know God through His Word, to see His glory. It's sheer grace. And Father, this passage captures what is the pinnacle of all grace, the giving of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray, Father, that You would give us eyes to see Christ this morning, that 
even in the midst of what we might be familiar with, there would be a renewed sense of wonder, faith, and obedience in beholding Jesus, who is both Savior, Christ, and Lord. Pray that You'd keep me from error. Pray that You'd give Your people grace now to discern the truth and to hold fast to it for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, friends, you might say that our passage today needs no introduction. The Christmas story, as it's often called in Luke 2, is surely one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. Bethlehem, the manger, the angels, the shepherds, it's all very familiar to most people, even to people who are not Christians. It's all very familiar. These events are well known. So perhaps we don't need much of an introduction. And yet, I would say that while most people are familiar with the events of the Christmas story, we still often overlook the purpose. We're familiar with the events, but we can often overlook the purpose. Remember, friends, God, through His Word, always intends to act upon the lives of His people. Scripture is the living Word of God. And through His Spirit, God uses His Word not merely to narrate events, but primarily to transform the lives of His people. God always intends to act upon us through His Word. And that's certainly true even in this passage, Luke 2, which is familiar to us. There is a purpose beyond narrating the familiar events of the Christmas story. Notice how Luke sets up the whole scene with Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, the city of David. Friends, Bethlehem was a small town with massive expectations. The Old Testament prophet Micah said a king would come from Bethlehem, and this king would rule and reign over the entire world, and every person would be subjected to this king. And that's it, friends. That's the greater purpose behind the familiar events in Luke 2. This passage is a declaration that God Himself has come into the world. He has come into the world as King, and He comes with the call, the demand even, that we orient our lives around Him and who He is and what He's come to accomplish. You see, it's about more than shepherds and a silent night in Bethlehem. The Christmas story is fundamentally a call to allegiance. It's a demand for your life to be oriented around this child. It's a call to worship and obey the One who is born as creation's King. And so, while we're familiar with the story, I do hope that this theme of allegiance to the King, the theme of allegiance to this newborn King, I want that to frame our time together this morning. What Luke narrates here is the coming of God's King, but as we'll see, there are three different perspectives to who this King is. First, we're going to note the humility of the King in verses 1-7. to Then we're going to note the glory of the King in verses 8-14. to And finally, we're going to consider our witness to the King in verses 15 to 21. Humility, glory, and witness. Three scenes, each connected with kingship, but all coming together in order to reorient our lives around the Lord Jesus. Let's start then in verses 1 to 7 with Luke's first point here the humility of the King. The humility of the King. In the first of a few surprises, Luke doesn't begin his account in Bethlehem the city of David, Luke begins in Rome, the city of Caesar Augustus. Notice verse 1 there where 
Luke places Jesus' birth squarely in a global context as Caesar Augustus orders a census of all of his subjects in the empire. Now, Luke gives us all sorts of historical background about this census, and I'm going to let you read all of the secondary literature about that background. It's extensive. Enjoy. What I want to focus on here for our purposes is that we should note this census is a display of Caesar's power. The census is a display of Caesar's authority. Here is a man who can order the known world to obey him, and the known world obeys. Friends, that's some kind of authority. And that's part of Luke's point. Jesus is born in the shadow of a powerful ruler who can seemingly make the entire world do his bidding. It's a global context of power. But in contrast to that global power, notice where Luke goes next in verse 4. He turns his attention to a solitary couple, Joseph and Mary, journeying from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Friends, I hope you catch the contrast in these opening verses. These groups of people don't belong together. On the one hand, we have mighty Caesar who has the authority to command the world, it seems. And on the other hand, we have a lowly couple in an out-of-the-way part of the world probably just trying to get through this ridiculous bureaucratic census so they can just go home. Mighty Caesar, lowly couple. You see, you could not find people who are more different. From all appearances then, it seems that Caesar is running the world and everyone is subject to Caesar. Then something wonderful happens in verse 6. Luke gives us one of those rare moments in the Bible when the curtain of redemptive history is pulled back and we're allowed to see what God is doing behind the scenes. We're allowed to see the divine purpose behind human events. Notice the simple but stunning news in verse 6. And while they were there, that is, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. So very quietly, friends, what we witness here is the sovereign providence of God. Just to remind you, providence refers to God's active role in governing, sustaining, and directing all things in His creation. And that's what we witness in verse 6. Caesar's census serves God's purpose. Caesar's census serves God's purpose. Here's what I mean. The Old Testament clearly said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But Mary, you'll remember, is from Nazareth, some 90 miles away. How then will Mary, the mother of the Messiah, get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? By divine providence. That's how. Caesar's census serves God's purpose. It gets the mother of the Messiah to the town where the Messiah needs to be born. But it gets better. Not only has God orchestrated the census, He's also done so at precisely the right moment in time. Think about it. Mary could have given birth on the journey. 90 miles is a long way to go for an expectant mother. And it wasn't like it was on the interstate in a nice infinity SUV. It was 90 miles a long way to go. She could have given birth along the way. She could have given birth before they left. Or even after they got home. But she doesn't. Through providence, the census brings Mary to Bethlehem at precisely the right time. In other words, friends, these events are not happenstance and they're not accidental. These events are purposeful. Divinely purposeful. 
In fact, that's why Luke gives us all of this background. That's why he gives you all the history. It's not so that we can just coordinate timelines and make sure that everything is historically accurate. Yes, that's true, but that's like the bottom shelf of why he's doing this. The bigger reason why Luke is giving you all of this background is so that you'll see that Caesar is not sovereign. God is. Caesar is but an instrument in God's hand. Caesar is a, the, uh, just another instance in a long line of human rulers who do God's will even if they don't acknowledge God themselves. Caesar's but an instrument in the hand of the Lord. An instrument whom God will use to bring the true King into the world. So before we go any further, friends, let's just remind ourselves here of what is true. We do not live in a world run by chance. That's good news. We also do not live in a world run by powerful people, whether those powerful people be in Rome or Washington, D.C. No, we live in a world run by a providential Heavenly Father. And as we see here in this passage, His providence is always purposeful. It accomplishes His will. His providence is always precise. He orchestrates every detail with meticulous wisdom. And His providence is always perfectly timed. God is never late. Purposeful, precise, and perfectly timed. Brothers and sisters, that's the God who oversees our world. Even better, that's the God who oversees your life and mine down to the very number of hairs on our head. Listen, I know that doesn't resolve all of life's questions, and it certainly doesn't make everything better instantly. But this truth should encourage us, friends. This truth should encourage us to trust the Lord. The storms of life will continue, but the truth of God's providence is like an anchor that holds us steady in the storm. And if God can cause Caesar to do His will, then surely He can orchestrate the events of your life and mine to do us good. Purposeful, precise, perfectly timed, That's the providence of God here in Luke 2. And friends, we can trust Him because of that truth. As we look back to the text, we see the culmination of that providence in verse 7 as the true King is born. Look at verse 7 and note the humility here. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, it's hard not to have those familiar nativity scenes in your mind when you read verse 7. But if you were reading this for the first time, what would stand out to you is the lowliness, the humility, even the humiliation of this moment. Mary and Joseph are likely in an outdoor shelter that travelers would use to house their animals overnight. And that manger, friends, is not the little hay-filled box with warm, flickering light you know, kind of shining around it, angelic beams from heaven coming down on the bay. That's not what the manger is. It's a feeding trough. So it's dirty. And it probably smells bad. Think about how bad your toddler's tray on his high chair smells after dinner. And that's a human child. Think about a feeding trough of animals. It's dirty. It's smelly. It's not nice. And yet those are the circumstances in which God's King comes into this world. He comes to the world in lowliness in humility, in in literal dirt. And listen, friends, even in Luke's Gospel, this is rather stunning. Again, you you have to work hard not to just go with what you've always heard from the familiar. You've got to work hard to think about this 
in the context of Luke's Gospel. Think about the angelic appearances in chapter 1 and the expectation that God was up to something. Think about the songs of Mary and Zechariah. How they were rich with hope that salvation was coming. How they were rich with this expectation that God was coming to save them. The entire opening chapter has been building expectation. And where has that expectation taken us? Not to a palace with servants attending every need. Not to Rome with mighty Caesar counting his tax dollars. No, all of the expectation of chapter 1 has brought us to a feeding trough where animals get their meal. And it's there in those humble circumstances that we find the Lord of glory in human form. Friends, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because the humility of Jesus' birth is actually very instructive. The the circumstances here are instructive. Again, these details are not incidental or accidental. These things are purposeful. The humility of Jesus' birth helps us see the truth about who Jesus is and how He's going to save His people. Consider what we confess to be true about Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God, glorious and co-equal with the Father in power and authority. And yet the Son did not consider His glory something to hold on to. Instead, the Son laid aside His glory and He took on human form. Friends, that's the miracle of verse 7. The Maker becomes man. The Creator becomes like His creature. The Sustainer of all things is sustained by His Mother whom He created. Friends, that coming together of glory and humility, that coming together, that's the incarnation of Christ. The humility here actually gives us great insight into Jesus' person that though He is God, He has humbled Himself in order to dwell among us. But the humble circumstances also teach us about how Jesus will accomplish His mission. Consider what we confess to be true about Jesus' work. He has come to save the people of God. He has come to finish the work of redemption. But He's not going to save His people through a display of power that overthrows the Romans. And He's not going to save His people through a display of might that overwhelms His enemies. No, Jesus will save His people by humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, there's no lowlier place to be born than a feeding trough. And there's certainly no lowlier place to die than a cross. And the Lord Jesus in His humility endured both of those. That's what Luke wants us to see here. The lowliness of the manger actually prepares us for the humility of the cross. If you have eyes to see, you'll see where the trajectory is taking you. It's taking you to the Son of God being willing to lay down His own life for His people. So before we rush past the manger scene thinking we're familiar with what happens, we should pause here in wonder. We should pause here in worship that the Son of God would humble Himself to such a point and that He would humble Himself for us and for our salvation. From beginning to end, this King, God's King, is marked by humility. And that humility, friends, is actually foundational to our salvation. So that's the first scene Luke gives us here in chapter 1, the humility of the king. Beginning in verse 8, however, we see the truth on the other side of the spectrum, the glory of the king. The glory of the king. Now this second scene here is certainly full of glory, and we're going to get to that glory in just a moment. But before we do, the 
the surprising note of humility continues. Notice who receives the first announcement of the king's birth. Not significant or prestigious people living in a palace somewhere. No, the first announcement comes to shepherds. Notice verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Friends, it's difficult to overstate the simplicity of this moment. These shepherds are just working class guys doing their job. If you wanted to create a buzz in Bethlehem, these are certainly not the people that you would pick. It's not that shepherds were despised. I think that aspect has been overplayed some in the way people talk about Luke 2. It's just that shepherds were ordinary. They were entirely forgettable people. They're just ordinary guys. But as we look at verse 9, we find that these ordinary shepherds receive a message that is anything but ordinary. In verse 9, Luke narrates a series of glorious revelations. A series of glorious unfoldings of what God is doing, one after the other. There's four of them. And I want to focus in for just a minute on each of these revelations so that we can get a better feel for the glory of the, of the moment. First of all, you'll notice the shepherds see the glory of heaven. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Friends, the key phrase here is the glory of the Lord. That's an Old Testament phrase that's used to describe God's presence dwelling among His people. When Moses would go into the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord would descend. When Ezekiel saw God leaving His temple, he saw the glory of the Lord leaving and going away because the people were being separated from God. The glory of the Lord denotes God's presence. And that's what the shepherds see here. It's not just that they get to meet an angel. It's that they get to come into the presence of God on some level as His glory shines around them. So the the shepherds receive a glimpse, a little sliver of the glory of heaven itself. That leads to the second revelation, the glory of grace. You'll notice in verse 9, the shepherds are afraid, and rightfully so. The revelation of God's glory is frightening without explanation. But the angel quickly dispels their fear in verse 10. And the angel does so with a message of grace. Notice verse 10. For fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Friends, that phrase, bring you good news, is simply the verb for preaching the Gospel. Just what it is. I I, I announce the Gospel to you, is what the angel says. And that's why the shepherds shouldn't be afraid. This isn't a message of judgment. This is a message of good news. And then notice how the angel defines that good news. It's good news of great joy, the text says. Again, we find that the Old Testament helps us understand the point. In the Old Testament prophets, the idea of great joy was connected with the coming salvation of God. You'll you'll find it all throughout the book of Isaiah, for example. In fact, Isaiah 35 is a really good, illustrative place to read. What will happen when the glory of the Lord shines on His people? They will break out in joy, Isaiah says, and they will see that God has come to save them. Friends, that's the message that the shepherds receive here in Luke 2. Do they know all the details about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension? No, not yet, because it hasn't happened. That's why Jesus is going to live and minister. But even so, it's this glorious announcement that God in His grace has drawn near to save His people. And so friends, what we should see in the shepherds is a living illustration of the surprising grace of God. 
The shepherds are a living illustration of the surprising grace of God. Think about it. The shepherds have nothing with which to commend themselves to God. They were not wise, significant, or powerful people. But suddenly, and without explanation, grace interrupts their lives with this good news of great joy. This is the grace of God, friends. It is surprising. It is unexpected. It is free. And it is wonderful. The shepherds are illustrating for us what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That God chooses what is low in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is how the Lord works. The shepherds are a reminder. They're an illustration. They're a picture of the nature of God's grace that it just interrupts everyday life and it announces good news to people who don't deserve it. This is how God works and how fitting that God would choose lowly shepherds to help us see the glory of grace. The angel's revelation continues. Verse 11, the shepherds hear the glory of the Messiah. Notice what the angel says verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Friends, you could preach an entire sermon or two on just that verse. It's jam-packed with incredible truth. But I want to focus just briefly on the three titles the angel uses for Jesus. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Each one is significant on its own, but taken together they're astounding. Savior is one of Luke's favorite titles for Jesus. He uses it more than Matthew and Mark put together. But while the title is frequent, the point is striking. To put it very simply, friends, in the Old Testament, who was coming to save the people of God? God was coming to save them. God is the Savior according to God's Word in the Old Testament. When you read the Psalms and the Prophets, it is very clear that the Lord God of heaven is the One who saves. Here in Luke 2, though, it is Mary's son, Jesus, who is called the Savior. Jesus will fulfill what God is coming to do. Jesus will take on Himself the name, the title that Scripture uses for the Lord God alone. Jesus then is the Savior. The One who comes to do God's work. Next, the angel says the child is the Christ. That means He is the Messiah. The long-promised Son of David, the King who would defeat God's enemies, save God's people, and reign over God's kingdom forever. All the Old Testament prophets were waiting for this figure, for the Messiah. All the prophets were waiting. They were hoping. First Peter tells us that the prophets were longing to understand and to see this One who would come and fulfill the words that they were speaking. And now the angel says to shepherds of all people that the wait is over. The child in Bethlehem is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised Son of David. But the last title brings it all together. The angel says that Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord. Now remember who is speaking to the shepherds. This is a heavenly angel. This is a being who dwells in the very presence of the Lord God Himself. So, if the angel calls Mary's child the Lord then surely we're meant to see the connection between Jesus and God Himself. If the angel calls Him Lord, then He is surely God in the flesh. Very God of very God, as the Creed tells us. Fully God in human form. The Lord even, now dwelling among us 
in the flesh. Listen to me, friends. You will hear people talk all the time that they love the ethical teachings of Christianity. They love the call to love neighbor and to sacrifice, but they just don't believe that Jesus is divine. You cannot have Christianity without Jesus being divine. And the Bible is crystal clear that He is God. The Bible takes these names for God that would only be used for the Lord God, for Jehovah, for Yahweh in the Old Testament. It takes these names for God and it applies them to Jesus. There is no world in which you can feasibly call yourself a Christian and not believe that Jesus is fully divine. It just doesn't hold together. God's Word is clear here. And I don't mean to suggest that the shepherds are putting all these things together. It's not like they're making perfect formations of Chalcedonian Christology. They're not doing all of that. They don't understand all that it means for Jesus to be both God and man. But I do want us to see that the truth about Jesus Christ has been proclaimed and believed from the very beginning. In other words, the church didn't make this up. Jesus is truly human, born of Mary, like us in every way, yet without sin. And He is fully God, declared by an angel to be the Lord Himself. There is no Christianity apart from this truth. The God-man in the flesh, the incarnation, the greatest miracle in all of the Bible. The shepherds get to hear the glory of the Messiah. Finally, to bring it all together, the shepherds hear the glory of salvation. After a sign from the angel in verse 12, the shepherds receive a final word. Notice verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Essentially, friends, an army of angels joins in and they combine to sing God's praise in the highest degree. It's a foretaste of heaven. This is the only proper response to what has happened. God receives the glory for what He has done. But you'll notice that the angels sing of peace on earth among those with whom God is well pleased. I think we should be clear here that the peace in view is the peace of salvation. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the peace of salvation. You see, this is how Jesus will save His people. He will bear God's wrath on the cross. He will make atonement for sin. And as a result, there will be peace. Between whom? Fundamentally, between God and man. There will be peace. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we should be clear that this peace is not a general, universal experience. This peace is particular. It comes to those with whom God is pleased. Do you see that there? That's the same as saying this peace comes to those on whom God bestows His grace. This peace comes to those who believe the truth about Jesus Christ. How do you know this peace with God? You believe the message in verse 11 that Jesus is the Savior, even Christ the Lord. So this is not a general, vague idea of peace. It's not some absence of conflict merely. This is redemptive peace. This is justifying peace. This is salvation, in other words. The shepherds hear the glory of salvation. So, let's put all the pieces together from the angel's announcement. What do the shepherds see and hear? The glory of heaven, the glory of grace, the glory of the Messiah, all culminating in the glory of salvation. The humble king born in the manger is also the glorious king who has come down from heaven to save his own. What a wonderful picture, friends. 
of the fullness of Jesus Christ. It really is a wonderful picture of the fullness of Jesus Christ. He is humble enough to save and He is rich enough to reveal the glory of God. The question then is, how should we respond? I said at the outset, God's Word always intends to act upon us. So how should we respond? Surely this good news is too astounding to do nothing. That would be foolish, not to mention unfaithful. So how should we respond? Well, the answer actually comes from the shepherds in our final scene. Beginning in verse 15, we see our witness to the king. Our witness to the king. The shepherds waste no time. Verse 15, they quickly head to Bethlehem. And in verse 16, they find confirmation of the angel's message. They find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. So once again, God has done exactly what He said. I hope you're noticing that theme throughout these first two chapters in Luke. Time and time again, Luke is telling us God always keeps His Word. Just as He said, He always keeps His Word. But then in verse 17, you'll notice the shepherds take on a new role. They witness to what God has revealed. Notice verse 17. And when they saw it, that is, when they saw the child, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. In a sense, friends, the shepherds here are like early evangelists. Remember, the angel announced good news to the shepherds. It was the same word for just preaching the Gospel. The angel announced good news to the shepherds, verse 10. And now the shepherds have the privilege of passing on that good news as well. They witness to the reality that the baby in the manger is the Savior, even Christ the Lord. They're witnessing to Him. And the result is just as astounding. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Now, we don't know who all is present there in the, in the stable, in, in, the, in the manger area. We don't know who all is there, but apparently there are some people present. But the key is the people now share in the shepherd's wonder. They hear the shepherd's witness and they too get to marvel at the mighty work of God. Through the witness of the shepherds, the glory of what God has done begins to spread. It gets a little deeper still. Notice Mary's response in verse 19. It's a bit unique. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, we're going to see the same response from Mary at the end of chapter 2. And I'll have a few more things to say at that point about Mary. But for now, what I want us to see is the connection between the shepherd's witness and Mary's treasuring. The one leads to the other. Without the one, you don't get the other. The shepherds report and Mary ponders. The shepherds witness and Mary treasures. Do you see the connection? Without the shepherds witness, there is a depth of wonder that even Mary would have missed out on. She didn't hear the angel's announcement in the field that this Savior, Christ, she didn't hear specifically what the the angels had heard. They said to the shepherds, so by witnessing to Christ and passing on the truth of God's Word, Mary receives a depth of wonder, a treasuring of God's glory that she would not have had otherwise. The shepherd's witness deepens this experience of treasure that Mary has in the birth of her son. Or to say it another way, God has used 
lowly shepherds to spread the good news of great joy, even to the point to where Jesus' own mother goes deeper in pondering and treasuring and beholding the things of God. The witness leads to deeper wonder. And then look where it ends for the shepherds. How kind of God. I love verse 20. Having seen Christ and fulfilled their role, what do the shepherds get in the end? They get the joy of deeper worship. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. I think that's beautiful, friends. Not only do the shepherds receive the grace of hearing good news, not only do they receive the grace of seeing the Messiah themselves, not only do they have the grace of witnessing to God's Word, but now they get to top it all off with deeper joy and worship before God, and that's enough for them. They go back to their job. I love the fact that they go back to watching the sheep praising God, changed by the glory of God revealed to them. How kind of God to take lowly shepherds and to show them this kind of grace. You know, if we zoom out for a moment, we can begin to see that the shepherds picture for us the right response to the good news of Jesus Christ. They, they illustrate for us the right response to the good news. Think about what has happened to the shepherds in the course of just a few verses. They received the good news, verse 10. They believed the good news and went to find the child. Verse 15, don't miss that. They believed what the angel said. And they went to find the child. And then they witnessed to what God had revealed. Verse 17, do you see it? Received, believed, and witnessed. Friends, that progression is the Christian life in miniature. It's the Christian life in anticipation. In fact, I'm convinced that Luke intends us to identify with the shepherds. And then to join them in this same joyful witness. Think about it. As believers, we had nothing to commend ourselves to God. We had nothing with which to appeal to God for grace. But God, in His mercy, revealed to us His good news. And by His grace, we believe that good news by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe just what the angel said here in verse 10, that Jesus is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the one who laid down His life for His church. The one who atoned for sin once and for all. The one who rose again on the third day. The one who even right now reigns over all things as the Sovereign Lord. That's the good news that we have received and believed by grace. And now, what should we do? What should be our response? Like the shepherds, we must witness to what we have received. Received, believed, witness. It's incomplete without the witness. We must witness to the good news that the Savior has come and that His name is, is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, listen to me for just a minute. There are a number of things that we're called to do as the people of God. There are various seasons to the Christian life, but in the midst of all of that, this one thing is constant. Our calling to witness to Jesus Christ. To be messengers of this good news. Jesus' glory spreads over all the earth. God says, it's a promise, all the, all the earth will see the glory of God in Christ. It will not fail. How does that happen though? Through you and me spreading that message with our lives. The glory of Christ spreads as His people proclaim the good news. His Gospel brings life to the lost. You know that God's Word can take dead sinners and make them alive. That is staggering. How does it happen? As you tell them the Gospel. As you preach the Gospel to them. 
This is how the glory of God spreads over all the earth. It's through the witness of His people. We receive it, we believe it, and then we must witness to it. It's how God's plan unfolds. Without the witness, it's incomplete. Our church doesn't have a formal evangelism program. There's no tab on our website where you can go and sign up for evangelism explosion or anything like that. And that's really on purpose. It's on purpose that we don't have that. Because we want the members of our church to be the evangelism program. We want all of us, each of us, every one of us, living with eyes wide open, taking every opportunity God brings our way to speak with people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that's a one-off conversation at the park or in line at the store. Other times it might be more ongoing, like a friendship with a neighbor or a coworker. Whatever the form, our calling is to witness to the Gospel of Christ. Receive, believe, witness. Without the witness, the progression is incomplete. And I'll be honest with you, friends, I'm convicted by these shepherds. Lowly, smelly shepherds have convicted me that I'm often excited about the receiving and the believing. And I'm not as excited about the witness. I'm convicted by the shepherds. And I pray that you are as well. And I want to be clear. By no means am I trying to guilt anyone into being a witness. The shepherds weren't compelled by guilt. They were compelled by glory you wouldn't have been able to stop them from speaking. They had to speak about what they saw. They weren't compelled by guilt. They were compelled by glory. They saw the glory of God in Christ, and they could not help but speak. And the same will be true for us. The place to start is not with guilt, but with a renewed desire to see the glory of Christ, followed by a renewed commitment to make Christ known wherever God has us. Friends, wherever God has you, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, your family, You're the most strategic Christian in every one of those places to make Christ known. So would you join me in praying, brothers and sisters, would you join me in praying that God would make us a church full of faithful witnesses to Christ who is the Savior and Lord. And then with prayerful hearts, let's be about the work that God has called lowly people like us to do. The glorious work of testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ. We receive it. We believe it. We witness to it. That's our response. Well, as we said at the outset, many people know the events of Luke 2. Few people see the purpose. The King of glory comes in humility. And in response, His coming calls us. It demands us, even, to use our lives in allegiance to Him. It demands of us our allegiance, our faith, and our witness. And so, my prayer, I hope it's your prayer too, that God would make us faithful, brothers and sisters, until the day the King returns. Amen. Let's pray. Father, truly, these are wonderful things that Your Word has revealed to us. The glory of Christ revealed to us in humility. Revealed to us in humility so that He might save those whom You have given to Him. And we praise You, God, that He is truly the King over all the earth and He will not lose a single person whom You have given to Him. And that He will reign over all things and His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. None of those things are in doubt. And yet, God, in Your kind, merciful, humble graciousness, You choose to use people like us to fulfill that purpose. 
Would You make us faithful, God? Would You convict us where we have not followed that progression through and been the witnesses that we ought? Would You convict us, God? And then would You open our eyes to see Christ more clearly so that we might witness to Him, God, with boldness, with hope, with confidence, and with expectation that the glory of God will be seen in the revelation of Christ. We do pray, Father, in His name and for His sake. Amen.